Our text this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. Peter wrote that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, Peter explains his purpose for the writing of both this epistle and his first epistle was that he might stir up the pure minds of those that would read this letter and they would stir up the pure mind by means of remembrance. Last week we looked at quite a list of remembrances of doctrinal truths that have been revealed by Peter in this second epistle and uh, focused upon that. In this second verse, Peter starts to focus on what he wants the believer to remember specifically. What the holy prophets said and the commandment of us apostles, and of the Lord and Savior, Peter wrote. He wrote it this way, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. The statement begins that you may be mindful of the words. The literal reading of that translated from the infinitive, a form of grammar that expresses a a purpose. He writes, it is my desired purpose that you are caused to remember. As we read the Word of God, we are reminded of the truths that we have heard in the past, of what we have read in the past, or what we have heard preached upon or taught in the past, and it stirs that memory. Peter is making reference to that process. It's my desire that you have your minds stirred up to remember, and to remember specifically, he says, what the holy prophets wrote, and then what the apostles gave us concerning the commandment of God. It is my desired purpose that you be caused to remember, he says, uh, the words. I point out that he refers to the words as he leads into that by the word the, the words, the specific words. In the language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek language, we recognize that the use of the word the, that's what we identify in grammar as the article, it's always used to identify something specific. 
As a matter of fact, probably one of the most frequently words in the Greek text that's not translated in your English New Testament is the word thee. Because it becomes redundant in our English language for us to use it, but it is there for a purpose to identify the specificity, the specific item or person that is being referred to. As a matter of fact, uh, unlike our English language, we have the, the word a. It is a apple. No, it would be an apple in our grammar. The word a or an is not found in the Greek language in the Koine Greek New Testament. Yet we have it frequently in our English uh, translation. But it does not exist. If the article, if the word the is not ahead of the noun that is being referred to, if that word there, the is there, then it's being specific. If it's not there, it's placing an emphasis upon the quality or the character of the thing that follows. For instance, there are places where it says, the Lord, and that would be emphasizing the Lord specifically. There are places where it says, Lord, and the absence of the word the in front of it emphasizes the characteristics of the Lord, not the person of the Lord, but the characteristics of the Lord. We find that frequently with reference to God. It's the God if we're identifying God specific, but it is God if we're identifying the eight attributes that form His character and explain to us His being. And so the use of the word the here is identifying specific words. It's the specific words. Let me point out too that there are two basic words in the Greek language for the word word. Now that's always awkward. I've never been able to find a way to make say the word word. Uh, But for the word word there are two basic words in the Greek that are used. Lagos is perhaps the most common word throughout the New Testament. And uh, it's translated then into the English by our word, word. The Lagos is the word. But there is another word in the Greek language for word, and it is the word rhema. Now, it's interesting to see the Holy Spirit's choice of words as He reveals to us the plan of God and the direction of God in our life. When we see the word Lagos, it's identifying the word that has been revealed. This is the word of God. And it's the word of God. But this is the the Lagos, that aspect that we have of the revelation of God from Genesis. Well, I have to pick up this one. If we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation, 
And uh, uh, this just being the Greek-English New Testament. It refers to that which has been revealed. The word rhema refers to that which has been revealed, which is understood, and which is now applicable to our lives. I remember as a kid we had uh, in our church, we had what they call sword drills. And they referred to the Bible as being the sword. Matter of fact, uh, we kids, if we just had the New Testament, it was our pocket knife. But if we had the whole Bible, then it was the sword. Well, the sword drill was to get us familiar with looking up Scripture uh, in the Word. And so we would be lined up across the front of the auditorium and uh, the uh, leader would uh, say, Attention, draw swords, and... Uh, we we would stand at attention and draw swords meant you were to take your Bible out and place one hand under it and one hand on top of it and no thumbs or fingers cheating over the edge either. Uh, you were to hold it that way. But the instructor would give a a passage. Second Timothy three fourteen. And then the instructor would say charge. And you would, as quick as you could, try to find that passage and as soon as you found it, you would step forward. It was a contest that to see who could find the most Scriptures the quickest, but the objective was to be able to find those Scriptures to teach us the familiarity of it. Well, I was dismayed then as I was preaching about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah, we call it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But the Greek word is not logos. It's not this book. It's not the printed word. It's the word that we understand and have accepted and is framed then in our left frontal lobe as a standard of life, a guide for us. So when we say the Word of God, the, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's rhema, not lagos. It's not what God has revealed. It's what God has revealed that we have understood, that we have accepted, that we are able to use then in practical application in our daily lives. The word words here in Second Peter is Ramathon. It's the plural form because it's including a variety of prophets and of prophecies that have been revealed throughout the Old Testament. So the emphasis is that we are to remember not just what the prophets said, but rather we are to remember the purpose, the application, the use of the words of the prophets, what they were teaching by their proclamations and statements. 
These were the rhema that were spoken before by the holy prophets. Which were spoken by four is translated from a Greek participle that means having as a matter of principle been previously spoken in the past with the result continuing in the present. Oh, it's not words that we understood at one time and have now forgotten, but it's the words of the various prophets that we have understood and is applicable to our lives and we as a matter of principle are able then to retain, to remember, to have that information present today. These were the rhema. These were the understood and applicable words which were spoken beforehand as a matter of principle by those prophets with a continuing result into our present time. They were spoken by the holy prophets. The word holy, translated from hagion, the Greek word, which actually means set apart unto God for service. Set apart unto God for service. These prophets of God had been set apart by God to service. Service for Him. To reveal to us the plans that God has for the future, that we might understand them, that we might accept them, that we might then be guided by them. The prophets spoke a lot of words. Words that were not fully understood by those that they were spoken to at the time. But through the process of one revelation following another, we are able, and of course from our historical viewpoint, we're able to look back and see how it all fit together and now have a better understanding of that which was being presented. The prophets spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God to give us revelation, to give us understanding that we might be able to know the plan of God, the future of God, to the degree or the extent that He wants to reveal it to us. We always want more information. If we could just have a little more information about what His plan is and how that's going to be carried out. We're focused on the details. And He many times speaks to us through His Word that we have to get further into the Word to find the understanding of that. It's the words that were spoken by the prophets, the words that have been understood, remember, not necessarily had all the concepts of how the application was coming, but one that was mixed with belief and faith. And then he said, and of the commandment. Now, the grammatical order, you hear me say this frequently, and I say it frequently because it occurs frequently. 
But word order is different in the Greek text from which this was translated into English. Word order was very important in the Greek in that it was used as punctuation, but not as word order is used today. The word order in a sentence today in English would identify the part of speech that that word is. The word can change its form, its part of speech, its function by its arrangement in an English sentence. But in Koine Greek, the word form is is identified and established by the form of the word. Its function is designed by its form. So you can move the words all around in the sentence. It would sound a little bit awkward to you and to me in our English, but it would have perfect meaning grammatically in the Greek if we understood the Greek grammar. And so the grammatical order in the Greek in this verse is different from the King James text at this particular point. Peter writes some things that are hard to understand. That's my comment because Peter said that about Paul. And as you've heard me say, I seem to follow Paul's thought pattern easier than I do Peter's. But we need to get a correct arrangement of the English so that we can examine it properly. It should read this way. Of the Lord and Savior, speaking, spoken previously, by means of the apostles of you. See, the English text that we read said the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, and of the Lord and Savior. That is not a correct rendering of what the Greek text says. The Greek text says that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the Lord and Savior of us, the apostles. The point is the commandment that Peter is calling upon them to remember and to understand and to accept and to make applicable in their lives, that command is not the command of the apostles. It is the command of the Lord and Savior, but it came by means of the apostles. Notice the reference, the command, the commandment. There, It is singular. Not talking about all the commandments, but rather a specific commandment, a specific commandment of the Lord and Savior. Now, the word Lord identifies the deity of the Messiah. The word Savior identifies His role as Messiah, His work of saving our souls. 
And both of those are used here. The word Jesus refers to his humanity. It's not in the text. The emphasis is upon his deity and upon his role as Messiah, as Savior. And this commandment of the Lord and Savior identifies the Lord and the Savior are the same person. Now we might debate that in our English presentation uh, of the text, but when we look at the Greek text, the word Lord and the word Savior are joined together by Greek grammatical rule. The structure of the grammar indicates that these are one and the same. The Lord is the same as the Savior. And Peter uses in his first epistle, he makes a reference uh, to the Lord God. That Jesus Christ God. He identifies the deity of Jesus Christ as God through the use of this Greek grammatical rule. He establishes an understanding for us that he is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, but He is deity. He is God. And this commandment that is singular here, not identified specifically uh, right here in this verse, this singular commandment was delivered by the apostles of the apostles, literally identifying then the role that these apostles played. It's not their command, but it's God's command. It's the command of the Lord and Savior. So, verse 2 should read this way. Peter says, It's my desired purpose that you be caused to remember the understood and applicable words, the ones having, as a matter of principle, been previously spoken in the past with a result continuing in the present under the means of the set-apart prophets and of the specific commandment of the Lord, even Savior, spoken previously by the apostles to you. Now, in order to understand which words of the prophets Peter is referring to, one must understand the context of this statement referring to the command. As we move to chapter 3, in the second epistle of Peter, he inserts a purpose for writing both epistles, to stir up their minds by remembering. We examined that last week in verse 1. In this chapter, Peter is going to embark on teaching concerning the second advent of Christ. He'll point out that there will be scoffers out to satisfy their own lust pattern, which will attempt to dissuade others from the faith. As Peter closed the second chapter of this epistle, he warned them about false teachers that had as their desire to make merchandise, make profit off of them, and mislead them in order to advance their own personal gains. Now, before he goes on to talk about the inability of those that do not have the Spirit of God, 
He called them back to His purpose for writing to them in both epistles. And we examined that last week. Here in verse 2, He now directs them to the words of the prophet which they have understood and applied. And the commandment of the Lord Himself, the one that was delivered by the apostles, their apostles, not the false teachers, described back in chapter 2, but the true apostles. Now this is shown by verse 3 and 4, which we'll examine, Lord willing, next week. Now if he comes before then, don't worry about it, he'll take over my role and we get all the answers at one time. But if things continue, then we will examine that next week. The words of the prophet to which reference is made are the words concerning the coming of the Messiah. Both advents. Because the prophets taught that Christ would come as servant, and then He would come as king. However, that distinction was blurred, and most of the Jews believed that when Jesus came, that was going to be it. He would come as king, He would overthrow the Roman government, He would establish His throne, and things would be great forever. They didn't understand, as we are able to understand now, the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of those give us a glimpse into two comings of the Lord. And Jesus explained that to His disciples the night before He was betrayed because they're thinking that tomorrow He's going to overthrow the Roman government and we're going to be in power. And He says, tomorrow I'm going to be dead. Because He had to come pay our debt before He could come and rule us as king. And so the Scriptures now began to fit together on some of these things the prophets had said. Now for a review of those words of the prophets, uh, you might this week read those books that I just cited off. (laughs) Uh, uh, This week, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, kind of read through them. But I'm going to capsule it for us this morning before we move on then to the actual text that Peter wants to deliver in the next verses. The commandment that is referred to is it was introduced to us back in chapter 2 of this epistle, verse 21. For it had been better for them, speaking, remember, of the false teachers, it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn, notice, from the holy commandment that was delivered unto them. In our examination of this verse, word by word, in our previous study, Back in chapter uh, uh, 2, we have come to understand what was being presented by Peter concerning these false teachers. These false teachers, 
and false prophets were teaching falsely and they were doing it for monetary gain. They were doing it for recognition. Their, their whole objective was wrong in their pursuit. And so Peter said it would have been better for them not to known the way than to have known it and then not do it. And so that sparks all kinds of controversy. Uh, are there varying degrees in hell? Is the temperature going to be hotter for those uh, that knew the way than for those that never heard uh, the gospel? How's all that going to play out? Well, uh, it seems to be there's going to be one room temperature for the whole of the lake of fire and brimstone. We saw in our study where it said it had been better for them not to have known. The word known we saw in the study, epinokeni, meant to have made it their purpose to understand fully the salvation of God. It had been better for them not to have understood fully the salvation plan of God. The way, he says, the one of righteousness. Then after they had known it, having made it their principle to understand fully what the plan of God was, then to turn from the holy commandment. So in our study of that verse, we saw that he's making reference to the false teachers and he says concerning them, it would have been better for them not to have fully made it their purpose to understand the plan of God, the way of salvation, the way of righteousness, as he refers to it here. And remember the word righteousness means conformity to the specifications of the plan. Or for you ladies, uh, in your lady language, it means according to the recipe as it's been set forth. God has a plan for mankind and He's revealed that in a variety of ways throughout the history of time. He walked personally with Adam and Eve in the garden until the fall. And then he revealed his plan at the fall that the seed of the woman would triumph over Satan. He then instituted for them a sacrificial system which was not a means of salvation, what was a means of directing them to the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, who would be the means of salvation. He instituted then the law, and he gave ritual that they, uh, it seems barbaric to us in our civilized, well, I don't know if we can call it civilized society anymore, but it seems barbaric to us, the, the slaughter of the animals uh, on behalf of their sins, uh, until we understand he was teaching them uh, the innocent dying for the guilty, showing and pointing to with every offering, with every sacrifice, with every ceremony, 
with all the washings, with all the cleansings, He was showing them the person, the character, and the work of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. They had the plan of salvation in the garden at the fall. That was elaborated upon through the development of the law, and then the prophets were sent along to reiterate that and to identify specifics as it relate related to that. But they got so involved in the ritual, in the order of service, that they missed the message. We did an experiment in a church where I where I pastored in Monrovia, California. It's it's been my uh, position that really the worship time should follow the message. The sermon should be preached first, and then we should worship. Because it's my position that the word is that which should motivate us to worship. Now, when you talk to these music people, my my brother and I used to have this discussion from time to time. He was a minister of music. And as I would talk with him, he said, no, the music gets them ready for the message. Well, that's kind of backwards. The message should be that which motivates us to worship, not worship to motivate us to listen to the sermon. And so I've made a number of attempts in past churches to reverse that order, to preach first, and then have the worship and the song service built around that to follow. There's only one place it worked, and that was where we started a new work in South Dakota. And uh, and we were able to lay that groundwork for a year before we actually started uh, the worship time and bought a building and, and moved into a church structure. Every time I've tried to do it in other churches, when when the sermon's over, we're accustomed to going home. And it simply has played down the worship time. Everybody's already putting on their coats and picking up their Bibles out of the pew and getting ready to go. I did that at the church in Monrovia. I tried to prep them for a month that we were going to be doing this. And so that time came, that Sunday came, and I got up to prove we had an opening song, and then I got up and started preaching. And halfway through my sermon, there was a hand up. And I said, yes, Brother Allen. And he said, you didn't make the announcements. We didn't sing all the songs. Well, <clears throat> needless to say, that seemed to be the case most places that I, I went with that. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's the Word that should motivate us to worship. But we're so accustomed to going home after the final Word that it just destroyed the worship. So I've condescended and become part of the problem rather than fixing it. We are to be motivated by the Word of God. And all of the ritual of the Old Testament pointed to the coming Messiah, the Lord, 
and we find him identified then. His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And then we find they called him Jesus. And that humanity grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then for three and a half years, that ministry uh, took a a focus upon the prophets, what the prophets had said, and how that pointed to Him, to the One that was speaking to them, to Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Messiah. But they rejected Him. Now we are called upon to go back to those books of prophecy and look at that prophecy and understand that it was pointed to the cross. It was pointed to Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession, and His coming again. These false teachers in Peter's day now understood it. But then, they walked away from it. As a matter of fact, it says, after they had fully known it, they made it a principle to understand it and fully know, and then after they had fully known it, they made it their purpose to turn away from Him. Now that in itself is not fatal. Because as long as there is life, there is hope, and there could be a turning back and an acceptance. They did not accept the commandment. They did not obey the commandment. The command was repent and be baptized. The the command was believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the commandment. They didn't obey the commandment. They understood the process. They understood the revelation. They understood the plan. But they wanted to work it for a system for themselves. And they turned away. We see that many, many times in the process of life where individuals have been confronted with the gospel, presented with the message of salvation, and turn away. Only in later years to make that commitment, to accept that that salvation, to be obedient to that command. Now, he's not talking about those that obeyed the command and then walked away from it. We have a lot of those that obey the command to call upon the name of Jesus for salvation and then walk away from it. And God has His dealing with them in the Scripture. It's identified as the sin unto death. They don't lose their salvation because... Our salvation is not dependent upon how we live. They lose all their reward because our reward is dependent upon how we live. But we're talking here about those who have understood the plan and said no. But in the text, we saw it was the aorist tense, which means a point of time, divorced from time, taken out of time, and perpetuated forever. In other words, they once and for all rejected the plan. That's why it was better for them not to have known and 
to rejected completely once and for all than it would have been for them to have known and postponed or temporarily rejected. No, the scripture indicates in a point of time, taken out of time, divorced from time, they said no to the plan of salvation. It had been better for them not to have said no. That's the emphasis. Better for them not to have understood it clearly and said no once and for all. It would have been better for them to have been exposed to it and then to have not rejected the commandment. Now, it's important we understand which commandment. The word commandment is interesting to me in the Greek text. It's entelis. And uh, it it's a feminine word which identifies a response. If the word is feminine, the emphasis is upon response. Commandment, the holy commandment of God, is based upon our response to Him. Now, in question during his earthly ministry concerning which is the greatest commandment, Jesus said this. Well, we find it recorded in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now you note that Jesus simply says this is a summary of the law and the prophets. This is not the commandment given to those to whom Peter writes. Peter says the commandment he refers to was given to them through the apostles. Again, the word commandment is feminine. Identifying response. God responded to our lost condition and provided a commandment by which we, if we will obey that commandment, we will, in that response, have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy whole household has this same access is what Peter said to Cornelius the Gentile as he presented the gospel to him. The single commandment is only believe. Only believe. That's the commandment that was delivered through the apostles. The word delivered is a participle which indicates it was a matter of principle for them to deliver this commandment. Now the word delivered is interesting because it identifies a mold which gives its shape to that which is cast in it. This commandment was fashioned into a mold by which one can have salvation. One can be shaped into 
a child of God. It was not just words being offered. It was a transformation to change our entire being by faith in Jesus Christ and a new birth. The commandment then is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This is the commandment the apostles delivered. It's a commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to make that distinction. Verse 21 of chapter 2 then said, For it kept on being better for them not to have made it their purpose to fully know the way, the one of conformity to the specific plan, than having made it a principle to fully know, to make it their purpose to once and for all turn from the set-apart commandment which was, as a matter of principle, delivered to them. So Peter tells us in this expanded translation here of verse 2 in the third chapter, it's my desired purpose that you be caused to remember the understood and the applicable words the ones having as a matter of principle been previously spoken in the past with the result continuing the present under the means of the set-apart prophets and of the specific commandment of the Lord, even Savior, that was spoken by the apostles of you. The commandment to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved was established first of all, by the holy prophets. Then it was reiterated by the apostles. The law and the prophets used ritual and verbal proclamations to reveal the plan and how that could be achieved. All the commandments and all of the prophetic utterances had one primary focus. Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world. God's grace could be appropriated by one's personal faith by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It all begins then at salvation. For the Bible has clearly taught us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible reveals that with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the commandment. To call upon His name, to place your belief, your dependency upon Him. And in that moment, it's irrevocable. God takes that moment out of time, He divorces it for time, and He perpetuates it forever. It's unchangeable. These false teachers 
had come to that point in which they understood the gospel message and they rejected it and they rejected it once and for all. Maybe once is not as accurate as for all. But in the rejection of it, it was final because that point of time in which they rejected it, they made a permanent decision concerning it. Salvation is available to us. We're going to go now into this third chapter of Second Peter. Peter's going to tell us what awaits us about the second advent and the things that await us in glory.